once Kobe was killed, it was like, what is this world? What is this life? Like you wake up, you go to sleep, you eat. It seemed all of a sudden more limited to me. And I needed something greater. I needed to learn Torah. I'm Tanya, and you're listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and would like to support the work of Human and Holy, please visit humanandholy.com sponsor to sponsor an episode of the podcast or give to Human and Holy in any amount. You can also become a patron of the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash humanandholy. Thank you to every single person who supports our work and brings it into the world week after week. Today's episode is an interview with Sherry Mandel, who is an Israeli-American author, mother, and activist. In May of 2001, her 13-year-old son, Kobe, was murdered near their home in Tekoa. Sherry and her husband founded the Kobe Mandel Foundation, a foundation that runs healing programs for families that have been directly affected by terror in Israel. She has written a couple books, one on Kobe's murder, The Blessing of a Broken Heart, and her most recent book, The Kabbalah of Writing, which uses the spheros as prompts to guide the reader through the writing process. Since we are in Spheros Omer, this is a cool book to check out if you are into writing. Today we have Sherry with us, and she shares her story of loss and revival, how the darkest experience of her life opened up a window to another world, making her aware that this world is not all that there is. Somehow, Sherry has turned her son's murder into a source of light, using the love she received throughout her grief to fuel the love she now gives to the world through her work. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you begin just by introducing yourself? Tell us your name and tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay, I'm Sherry Mandel. I live in Israel. I've lived in Israel for the past 27 years. I'm a writer. I made Aliyah with my husband and four children. That was in 1996. And in 2001, our oldest son, Kobe, he was 13. He was murdered by terrorists near our home in Tekoa. Since then, we started a foundation, the Kobe Mandel Foundation, and I've written a bunch of books, and I became a pastoral counselor, and I run groups for bereaved mothers, and I also teach creative writing, and I also teach Torah and writing, the Parsha and writing. Mm, cool. Wow. Okay, so there have been 
so many experiences that have led you to where you are today, doing all the work that you are doing now. So I want to take it back to the beginning. I've read two of your books and I know that's just a drop in the bucket. So this is your second book where you write about Kobe's murder, The Blessing of a Broken Heart. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about the title of that book. Yeah, The Blessing of a Broken Heart. I started writing about Kobe after his murder like three months later because of actually an event that happened. And it's in the book, An Event with Beggars. And after I wrote the book, I really didn't know what the title would be. And then I remembered this quote from the rabbi of Kutz, the Kutzka Rebbe, and it said, there's nothing so whole as a broken heart. And I remember when I had read that before Kobe's murder, I really didn't know what it meant. I had an idea, but I didn't experience life like that. And once Kobe was murdered and my heart was broken and my husband's heart was broken and Kobe was the oldest and we had three other children and everybody's heart was broken. And the question was really for me how to keep living because I really wanted to die. And we live in Tekoa, which is a little community outside of Jerusalem. And we were just surrounded by people who took care of us after Kobe was murdered. And we were really enveloped in kindness, mostly the people around us, but even people from neighboring communities and people from America, people like who knew me in Jerusalem. And we just experienced this outpouring of kindness. And I had never experienced that. Also, after Kobe was killed, a lot of things lost their meaning. I used to be really happy sitting by a pool, reading a magazine, you know, sunbathing. And that was no longer available. Like even reading novels was no longer available. And there's a woman from here. There were so many people who just gave me so much. Like there's this woman, Mira, from here, and she's Israeli. And she came and she learned to healing with me. She would just come sit in my yard with me. And before Kobe was killed, Tehillim, like whenever there was a crisis in Israel, or they'd always say, you know, say Tehillim, say the Psalms. And I really didn't relate to them at all. And after Kobe was killed, it was like Tehillim, it was like it was written for us because it was about a struggle of good and evil and kind of an epic struggle for good and evil and trying to understand where God is and God, have you forsaken me? And God is a God of kindness and just the struggle to understand how something so devastating could happen. And also right away, in fact, the chapter, the first chapter of the book that I wrote, it's called Holy Beggars. And Kobe was killed on May 8th. So his yurtzeit is very soon. He would be almost 36 now. He was 13 when he was killed. Yeah, like when I was thinking about it, it's 22 years. I mean, it's almost a quarter of a century ago. 
Like I didn't think I'd still be alive. I really didn't. And I really didn't want to be alive, but thank God I am. And so it would have been his 14th birthday, five weeks after he was killed. And my friend Shira here in Tacoa, she worked as an English teacher, but in America, she worked as a pastoral counselor. And she had trained with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's the person who did the stages of grieving, like denial, acceptance, bargaining, except it wasn't really grieving. It was really about having an illness, that those were the stages, but it sort of got co-opted to grief. Anyway, she spent a lot of time with me, and she told me that I had to do something. We had to do something for his birthday. And she said, because if you don't mark it, it will mark you. Mm. So it was 2001. It was the Intifada. His birthday was June 14th. And it was a really hot day. I went downtown on the bus with my kids. And we were walking around Jerusalem. I thought we would go to Burger King because when we made Aliyah, Kobe was in fourth grade, and it was really exciting for him to be able to eat kosher Burger King. Because in America, as my husband always says, everything says no, no, no to an Orthodox Jew. So being in Jerusalem, it was like, yes, yes. So I thought we would go there, but we walked by it. It was like just too depressing. And we ended up, we went to a vegetarian restaurant, and we walked in. And it was cafeteria style. And my kids, they went up to order. And I sat at the table and I was just crying. And I thought, what can I do for Kobe's birthday? And I got this idea that these words fell into my head, 14 beggars. And I thought to myself, I know what we'll do. We'll give money to 14 beggars for Kobe's 14th birthday. And the kids came back to the table, and I told them what we were going to do. And a second later, a beggar came to our table. Mm. And I gave the kids money to give to him, and I gave him money. And I'm sure he never got such good reception anywhere because we were so happy to see him. And it was like more than he needed us, we needed him. And then we went out on the streets of Jerusalem, like we went on the Midrahov, on the outdoor mall there. And we saw somebody with his leg up sitting on a bench. We went running up to him because we thought maybe he was a beggar, but he wasn't. And you can't say to somebody, excuse me. Do you need money? Are you a beggar? So we saw like one or two and we kept waiting. We found more beggars, but we couldn't find 14. So we went home and I told my husband what had happened. And he said he would go to the hotel the next day to give the rest of the money. And then that night I read a story in a book. I think it's actually called Holy Beggars. It's about Shlomo Karbach. And it was a story about a beggar. And after I read that story, I realized that we had become holy beggars because we were begging to find meaning and to find wholeness. And I think that the blessing of a broken heart is that you need to give because there's nothing else to do. There's nothing else that's going to fill that hole. 
And I, I think that we were able to start a foundation and work with thousands of children, bereaved children, and we're still doing the foundation. My daughter now is the director. She wow. just took over as the director of the foundation. And we're still going strong helping people. And, you know, for me, I grew up totally non-religious. I had no Sunday school, no bat mitzvah. I knew nothing about Judaism, and I knew nothing about Israel. So it wasn't until I came here for the first time that I started learning the Aleph Bet. And like in Olpan, when they would ask us, I remember one time we had to make a speech, like a one-minute speech in Olpan, and I decided not to go that day <laughs> because my Hebrew was so, I was so embarrassed to speak Hebrew. And my Hebrew, I, I still speak with a terrible accent, but it's like I was forced into Israeli society and I became Israeli. And I think that our ability to give and become sort of shlichim was because of this tragedy. Because also, I'm kind of an introverted person. I think most writers are. And I started managing all these programs for mothers, for bereaved mothers. And I did things like I spoke in front of 15,000 people in, in Hebrew at a Yom Zikaron ceremony. Wow. I went around the world speaking, and I did a lot of things that were uncomfortable for me. But I did them because I wanted everybody to know about Kobe. And Kobe was killed with Yosef Ishran. So I wanted them to know about Kobe and Yosef. But I think God sometimes works through suffering. Can you walk us through the events that happened and how you as a human being changed before you experienced that level of suffering and after? I hear through what you're saying now that you are a completely different person after the tragedy, even how you mentioned that little anecdote that reading a novel is no longer available to you and just how you were forced out of who you had been into a whole new level of being. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say I can read novels now. No, you can <laughs> Good. I'm so happy. <laughs> But sort of not with the same delight. I don't think I definitely like nonfiction better. I was a writer. I started out as a poet, and I was a writer. And then once I started learning, I came to Israel on a vacation, and I started learning about Judaism, and I started learning Torah. And I was just very attracted to it, very connected to it. But I didn't have a deep belief in God. I didn't really have a munah. And Kobe and Yosef, they just, they cut school on May 8th because we live right near this beautiful canyon and there's ruins of an ancient monastery. There are many caves there that are carved out of the canyon where monks in the sixth century had their study cells. And there's all kinds of like shards there from ancient pottery and in the winter, when there's rain, it fills with water. It's really magnificent canyon. And so Kobe and Yosef, they were both new in Tekoa. And all the kids played, they knew the wadi. So Kobe and Yosef decided to skip school. And they went down there. And 
they were met by terrorists who beat them to death with rocks. So um, after that, a rabbi told me, like, it's possible to, for your so- to die when you're alive. And I think that it was either we were going to be destroyed or, like me personally, I had to sort of reconstruct my whole self. And that first year after Kobe was killed, after Kobe and Yosef were killed, first of all, as I mentioned, I got we received a lot of kindness, but also I got a lot of signs from God. It was sort of like a spiritual mystery because I had worked as a writer for a family website and I was in the writer's room with these women and they were all a little bit mystical. And I just wasn't like that at all. I was very rational. I went to Cornell. I got a Bachelor of Science. I mean, I was also a writer, so I always liked words and stories. But I didn't really have that kind of belief in in something else like divine. And after Kobe was killed, all of a sudden, all these birds started knocking into my head and birds fell dead at my feet. A bird got stuck on the headlight of my car. Everywhere I went, there were birds. And then my mother lived in Florida and I went to Florida and I was walking on the beach and I wondered, I thought to myself, I wonder if Kobe's soul would come to Boca, you know, (laughs) like would, would it leave Jerusalem? Would it leave Israel? And then I sat down and I took out my sandwich and a bird hit me in the head, like knocked me in the head. And I told my sister and she said, you know, like the bird saying, like, what do I have to do to make it clear to you? And when I went back to Israel, I had a dream and that I talked to God and I said to God, how can you say you're a God of mercy? And in the dream, God answered me and God said, I am. And I said, I do not see it. And then God said, I do the mitzvah of Shiluah Haken, of shooing away the mother bird before you take the baby bird. And I didn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) And then I started learning with friends and I came back and there was a bird's nest. Like it was almost Kobe's yard site and there was a bird's nest. All of a sudden then I saw by my front door, like hanging there. And then I went to another friend to learn, and we learned that there's something called the Kensi Porlamala, like the supernal bird's nest. And it said, it's written that that's where Mashiach waits to redeem the world. And in that bird's nest are pictures of all the children who died Kiddush Hashem, pictures of all the children who died sanctifying God's name, and pictures of the first and second temple. So when I learned that, I understood that this was a bigger story than I realized. And it was like a national story. And then during the yurt site, like my friend actually gave a shiur, she gave a class out in my yard, And the birds had hatched from the bird's nest. And the baby birds were flying around as she was speaking. And we just saw a lot of examples 
of things that could not be coincidental, especially also with doing the foundation, because the foundation is a huge enterprise, and my husband was responsible for raising all the money. And just things would happen. Like one time he was in America and things weren't going well. And then he, all of a sudden there was, a truck went by that said Kobe Movers. You know, like things that just, I forget the exact story, but, you know, and things still happen to us that are just, you know, from beyond. That's something that I noticed in your writing is that the tragedy opened your eyes to seeing those moments. You were looking for an interaction with the beyond because suddenly you had reason to connect with the beyond. And once you did that, and once your eyes were open to that, it was almost like you were flooded with it. Like you couldn't <laughs> stop seeing it. Yeah, but I don't think it was just that I was flooded. I think it was more from the other direction. Mm. I don't think I was only seeing it. I think I was being given it. Okay. Because people lots of times say to me, oh, you were just, you needed to see it. Yeah, I needed to see it, but that doesn't mean I need a lot of things in life that I don't get. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it was like birds knocked into my head. Birds fell at my feet. Like birds were just surrounding me. It was like crazy. So, but I mean, part of it is that, I mean, I do agree with you that that I needed something, but I I didn't know what I needed. So, yeah. But I I think also that the soul, I mean, I'm no expert in this, but I have a feeling that on the other side, the soul is just much, like Kobe's soul was probably much more involved in this world than it is now. And since he was only 13 and a boy, and he had a lot of power, maybe... (laughs) He just had a lot of messages to send because my father had died before that, you know, and I would have loved to have felt my father's soul and I didn't feel it anywhere close to this. Do you think that it would be accessible? Because you mentioned, and I think that is really interesting, you mentioned that you feel like it was given to you, like it was coming from another realm and like hitting you in the face, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that that's accessible to people to like open their eyes to and begin to see it? Do you think it's happening more often than we realize and we're not necessarily paying attention? I don't know. Like even today I was with my grandson and I was walking and I just said to myself, just look at how gorgeous this world is. And for a moment, it was like everything was almost vibrating and filled with light. But it's not like I received a message. It was more that it was just everything switched on, like everything became more alive. And I think that that's available. And I think also that lots of times nature has messages for us. But I don't think they're personal messages. I remember I read a book about a therapist who she hurt her back and she didn't think she'd be able to be a therapist anymore because she couldn't sit. So she started walking around, walking with her patients. And she started looking at trees, at the way that trees grow. And that's what she started using for therapy, like the metaphor of the tree, the imagery of the tree and how it grows. So I think that's always available to that level of observation that eventually opens 
some sort of revelation. Today I was listening to a podcast about concealment and how if if there wasn't concealment, then there couldn't be a world because God would fill everything. So we live in a world of concealment, like olam, the word for world in Hebrew, has the meaning of hidden. So if there's so much hiddenness and concealment in the world, that means when you walk around like that, there are messages waiting there. And it depends how you read them. But I think like the Baal Shem Tov or somebody said something like that. Every encounter includes some sort of message for you or invitation, let's say. It's powerful. I mean, we don't usually feel it. It's because we're busy with what we have to do and where we're going and getting here, going there, making this appointment, finding this, getting ready for Pesach, you know. (laughs) But when you stop for a minute and just allow yourself to receive, then sometimes you can learn something. The blessing of a broken heart is that it opens you up. What I saw in your book was that it opens you up to recognizing what is significant in life. And a lot of the externalities fall away so that you are drawn to pay attention to something deeper because you're forced out of the world in a big way. Yeah, that's a good point because saying that phrase forced out of the world, because I became much more interested in the world to come. Up until Kobe's murder, I really felt like this world was enough, that I was happy with the world. Like I felt that it had everything I needed and was so complex and exalted and transcendent. But once Kobe was killed, it was like, what is this world? What is this life? Like you wake up, you go to sleep, you eat. It seemed all of a sudden more limited to me. And I needed something greater. I needed to learn Torah. And even language, like ordinary language, became really difficult for me, like the things people talked about. You know, I went swimming about six weeks after Kobe was killed. And people were talking about like, oh, did you see there's a sale on here? And all words hurt me because I, I was like, I needed to know where is God? Where's the soul? What's going on in the world to come? Is this punishment? How did this happen? I was sort of immersed in, yeah, in something so, so deep. And also the word nasty comes to mind (laughs) because it was so painful. Yeah. But still painful, but not like it was. You write about how people would look at you as like the champion of suffering. I don't know if those were the exact words that you used, but almost like if there was competition, you would have won. It wasn't just that you lost your son, but that you lost him in this brutal way. You had to come face to face with evil of terrorism that had literally taken your son who was just going on an innocent hike. Such a young boy. Like It was so charged. It wasn't just a death. Like you said, it had a much bigger and deeper meaning to it. And I think that's why it's so interesting that you've really transformed your son's death into this source of light for people through your books, through your foundations, because you recognized when it happened that it was like so big 
And it was like Kobe represented something really deep in this world. And his loss spiraled into something so much bigger than his own life. Yeah. Like even sometimes people will say to me, they used to call the office and they'd be like, are the Kobe's there? Can I speak to the Kobe's? <laughs> and also you have to remember this was the internet was just starting. People were just then doing email. There was like no Facebook. There was no social media. And so the fact that we were able to create this huge project was also that somehow, I mean, most of it my husband did because he traveled and he had been a Hillel rabbi. So he knew about raising money and programming. And he did a you know an amazing job. But when we started, it was 2001. And it was the beginning of the Intifada because the Intifada went on for like another four years, I think. So by the second year of the camp, we had 600 kids at camp who had lost a mother or father or a sister or brother to terror. And there was terrorism still going on. So at camp, we had guards, and then sometimes there would be terror attacks in the country, and we had to figure out, you know, what to say to the kids, how to deal with them. Once we had a camp, we were in the north, because we don't have our own camp. We, like, rent out kibbutzim or panimiot, like dorm schools. And that was during, there was a bombing from Lebanon that night, unexpected, and all the kids had to go into miklatim, into bomb shelters. And these are traumatized kids. We also have kids who are on the Gaza border. And actually, those kids were, were better, like the kids from Stayrot who were at the camp. They were more able to deal with the hatra'a, with the siren, than the kids like from the center of the country. But yeah, it's it's still a huge project. What was your experience of supporting other people through their suffering while processing your own experience? Most people shut down and go completely inward, and you were supporting other people while also processing your own pain. Yeah, that's a really good question. I must have been crazy. <laughs> I do not know how I did that. It was more that I needed... I didn't speak ordinary language anymore. So I wasn't in the world of living. I was in the world of suffering. So for me, at least for 10 years, I almost preferred to be with suffering because it felt more comfortable to me. And also I had something to give, especially once we started the camp. And the very first year we started women's healing retreats because Kobe was killed with Yosef Ishran and Rina, Yosef's mother, one day I saw her in Tekoan. I asked her how she was. She said, I just need some time for myself. I'm so busy taking care of everybody else. So I got the idea to do retreats for bereaved mothers and take them away. And we started doing them. And we started with my friends who had helped me. So like Shira, who was a pastoral counselor and does massage. And then I had a friend, Shulamit, who does EMDR. And she came and ran groups. And my friend Valerie would come and manage the groups. And then eventually we'd be, we got other people involved. But we did, we must have done like 
50 retreats for different groups of mothers. And also I organized them and managed them, but I also was a participant. So I think that I was always receiving because in those retreats we had art therapy and drama therapy and yoga and massage and movement. And then also like I met incredible people. Now we have somebody who's been volunteering for the foundation for a very long time, Sippy Cedar, who does psychodrama. And then my friend Rochi Sinai, she she's done mosaics with the women for I think like 10 years. And so also I meet these people who have like enormous capacity to give and who are also really talented. And I received a lot from them. But it eventually got to a point where I couldn't speak to mothers anymore. And actually, I trained mothers to be grief counselors. Like that was one of our programs because I thought, I can't do this anymore. Let's train these bereaved mothers to be grief counselors. And they trained, but they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it. But eventually, I, I had to stop being that person. But some of the people I helped, like I'll call them to to speak to somebody. Mm. It's a circle of giving. Yeah. But it's also, you have to, well, first of all, I was trained as a pastoral counselor. So I learned how to sort of be present and be quiet. <laughs> That's the main thing. <laughs> to be able to just be present for somebody else without like giving advice and without giving a lot of feedback and comments. Why did you feel you had to stop? Oh, because I got sick. Like I was getting sick. Also, I got to the point where I, I didn't want to hear the stories. That makes sense. Yeah. Once COVID came, that was when I stopped. But this year we had a family day recently before Pesach, before Passover. And I made a mistake because there were a lot of new people. And I asked a few people who died in your family. And they told me the stories. But it was because I asked. And I was just devastated. Like I couldn't sleep. And I, I realized this, no, I'm finished. You hear the story and you can understand the depth of the experience for the person. So your level of empathy is probably so much more intense and therefore you have to be so much more sensitive with what you hear for that reason, because it penetrates so deeply to your own wound. I want to ask you about a paragraph in the book that stuck out to me. First of all, I loved reading this book. It is so interesting to me that you were a poet, that you started out in poetry because each chapter is short and it has the potency of a poem. Each chapter left me as if I had just read a poem. And this paragraph, which I'll read and then I'll ask you about, says, Seth and me, we are learning. All the gold in the world means nothing to us. When I feel the despair of losing him, I remember my dream. Kobe races into the house, smiling in a mad rush. I have a soccer camp I have to go to, he says. I've got to change. And in my dream, I'm so happy to see his beautiful face. And I realize that he has come back because he needs to learn soccer. In my dream, I realize we come to this earth to learn something. My question is, what do you feel that you have come to this earth to learn? Mm. Yeah, well, what have I come to learn? Well, for example, 
tomorrow on Long Island in Lindbrook, it's my 50th high school reunion. Wow. <laughs> that I can't go. I, I mean, I chose not to go to it because also it's on Shabbos and Friday night and it's hard, but I would love to go because I still have friends. But I feel like, first of all, to make that move from being a totally secular person with no appreciation of Judaism, to make that move to live in Israel, to be religious, to be a kind of role model for people that you can have terrible tragedy and still live a really good life and have a lot of happiness in your life. And I think most of all that you can still believe in God and that you can still have emunah. Because I'm in a little learning group and one of the women said to me this week, she said, I'm finished with God. She's like, it's the first time in my life after the murder of the D family, of the two girls and the mother, Lucy. Oh my God. So my friend said, I'm just finished. I cannot have faith anymore. I can't have emuna anymore. And I think I said something to her like, we just don't know. We can't know. Like if we knew, then we wouldn't have this world because like I said before, God lives in concealment. And I also said that I just have a feeling that this world isn't the real show. You know, it's like when you go to a concert and you get somebody who's not great before the big star. And then we were learning Perky Avot. And actually, what were we learning that day? That this world is like a waiting room mm. for the banquet in the world to come. When we get up there to the other world, maybe we'll understand not just why it happened or what had to happen as a consequence, but that really there's some kind of eternal life and something that where we don't have the suffering that we have in this world. Because I said to my friend, Susie, I'm like, I just can't believe that God is a sadist. And I don't know why I can't believe that, but because I think there are people who can believe that. But like, I just refuse to believe that God is a sadist. So if he's not a sadist, then how can there be a Holocaust? And how could there be so many terrible things that happen? And then my friend Valerie, afterwards, she wrote me and she's like, it's amazing that your level of emuna. So maybe that's what my mission is. Not my mission, but what I was brought here to learn. Because I certainly didn't have it growing up. And I didn't have it for a long time. And it just, it's like a cumulative experience. And that doesn't mean that I won't not have emuna. Like, I think people mistake emuna. Like a lot of people who aren't religious, they're like, oh, it's easy for you because you believe. I mean, not the death, just life in general is easier because whatever happens, you just believe. But I don't think that that's like Jewish emunah. Because in Judaism, we really struggle with God. Like Avraham struggled with God, right? So if he struggled, then I think we're allowed to struggle too. 
the whole faith that's born out of the brokenness. You mentioned how you grew up, even when you were religious, you write about how you didn't experience a full faith of God. And through being forced to question, you found a stronger faith. And sometimes when we allow ourselves to go into that space of questioning, of wrestling, of really interacting with what faith actually is, then we can come to having a faith that is strong and that's real. Yeah. But again, I feel like I was given it, you know, like, okay. Because your experiences led you to where you are now. Like it wasn't a self. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to have faith now. No, 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 no. Right. It was more like all these things happened. Like even years later, Seth and I, we lived in Silver Spring before we made Aliyah and there was a boy there. He was like two years old and he drowned, but he didn't die. And he was in a vegetative state. And then when he, I think it was 14 when he died and he was buried here and his parents sat Shiva here and we went to the Shiva and it was the evening of our Shiva, of our yurt site. So we were driving home in that like Bena Zmanin time, like in the twilight. And all of a sudden a bird flew into the car and, and died at my husband's foot as he was driving. So like crazy, and it was right, but it was like the yurt site was coming on and we'd just been at that other yurt site. I mean, at the other Shiva. So I feel like the soul has a language that is a poetic language (laughs) that somehow is, is a language that's accessible to me. But even to my husband, he's not as poetic as I am. But like, there's things that happen that are just so eerie, so that Mm. you could just say, oh, a bird came into the car. But when it's cumulative, it's just hard to ignore. Like you said before, you didn't even have to be paying attention. Because I said, your eyes were open to what was happening. And it was like, even if I wasn't paying attention, because it was happening again and again and again, it was like, it's here. You had no choice but to pay attention. And the same thing, I guess you're saying with your faith is that it wasn't a proactive wrestling with your faith. It came to you. And yes, it occurred through the struggle, but it wasn't something that you were proactively seeking. Right. By the way, the Blessing of Broken Heart was made into a play. Mm. And there's a theater company here called Theater and Theology. And they put it on in Jerusalem last year. And they're putting it on for Yom HaZikaron, for Memorial Day in Israel. So it's going to be shown in Jerusalem next week Wow! for Memorial Day. But it, it was originally a theater director in San Diego. He wrote the play, Todd Salovey. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been going for a few years already. Well, it started more than 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a very powerful play. It's too much for me because somebody's playing me on stage Mm. and going through the experiences. So like, I'm not the right audience, but the audience is very moved. Is there anywhere to see it online for anyone who isn't in Israel? Films of the play? Maybe Todd Salovey, he's the director of the San Diego Arts Festival. So last year, they also had it on Zoom for the Arts Mm. Festival. So maybe they'll do it again this year. That would be really cool. Okay, I want to end off by asking you, for anyone who is listening, who 
has experienced brokenness in their life in any way, who is struggling to find the blessing of a broken heart and is very much drowning in whatever suffering they're experiencing, what words would you offer them? Well, first of all, I think you have to be able to receive. There are people who you, you know. I didn't have this really. Most people who I knew were very good to me. But I know a lot of suffering people have friends who step out of their lives or don't help them. But I think that there are angels who come into our lives when we're broken and that our job is to receive them. And if you don't get that support, then you can find that support online now because there's so many groups. Or you can even create that support by creating a support group. The other thing to think of is that you need a team. You can't survive this by yourself, probably. So the more people you put on your team, the more strength you'll receive. And to not be ashamed to ask for help. Because when you're broken, most of us can't put our broken pieces together. We need somebody else to help us and also to hold us in that time. Because once you're held like that and you receive so much, then I think that it's natural afterwards to have something to give. And on the flip side to anyone who can potentially be a support person for someone who is struggling, what would you say to them? In terms of being a support person, I think it's really important to just keep showing up and for a long time not just for the Shiva, and to just not really ask what the person wants, but give what you're good at giving that will match what the person needs, if possible. And also just to somehow allow that person to understand that she's not alone or he's not alone. Well, I'll just tell you this story that happened, that Shira, who is my friend and a grief counselor, the night, you know, in Israel, you get buried right away. So we found out Kobe was dead in the morning, and already in the afternoon, we were going to the cemetery. And then that night, I went up to my bed, and I thought, like, this, I was so destroyed. And on my pillow, she had put a little flower and a little like card. I don't even remember what was written there, but it was, it really moved me. So two years ago, Shira's husband, Jonathan, died. And after the funeral, it was like seven o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, I remembered what Shira had done for me. And I wasn't home. So I called her granddaughter. And I told her, listen, you have to do me a favor. You have to run up to your grandmother's room and just put some flowers on her bed and a little card that says that you love her. And so she did that. But I think what you receive is meant to be passed on and to be given. That is beautiful. And yeah, it was 20 years later. Yeah. You see, the thing with suffering is that it's profound and there's nothing, there's no way of, of escaping that. 
because it's life and death. And so you're not going to solve it by going to the movies. I mean, you're not going to solve it. (laughs) Unless it's a really good movie. (laughs) (laughs) Then maybe. (laughs) I am really struck by how so much of what you've shared today is about everything that you've received and how you've passed that on to other people. I don't even know how many times you mentioned just how kind the people around you were to you, how they showed up, how they gave to you, how they loved you, how they supported you, and then how you are clearly taking that love and everything that you've received and using that to support thousands of others who have experienced similar painful circumstances. It's like, a tremendous lesson to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was beautiful. Elokai zakinina betoatcha uvimitzotecha lichamberet nishmati tamidelecha Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Chassidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. (laughs) 